Hello and welcome to the Cinementalist podcast for Cinementalist.com. My name's Andy, sitting next to me is Floki, our bearded dragon mascot sitting opposite me is Liam. How's it going, matey? Yeah, I'm chicken over nicely, mate. How about yourself? Yeah, doing all right, thank you. Another grey, miserable and foggy week in Britain. Gorgeous. Everybody staying inside, everybody having a shit time. We are allowed to have some Christmas, though. Yeah, some, some modicum of Christmas, yeah. which is a lot better than nothing. But You had many people saying to you, like, are you doing Christmas this year? Yeah. So I have. Yeah. So, well, why not? I don't understand, you know, yes, we have like a pandemic ravaging the globe, but I don't see why being inside with your family and giving each other gifts and having a nice dinner together on the one day of the year where it's custom to do it, I don't understand how that's going to increase your chances of infection. Well, it's, it's, it's all the different families getting together, isn't it? Well, okay, but so then if you're worried about that, don't do that. It doesn't mean you have to just not do Christmas I, at all. I quite like a small Christmas. Yeah, small Christmas, large Christmas, no Christmas is the thing that's making me scratch my head. See, I've got a, well, I've got basically three different families I spend Christmas with. Yeah. I've got my mum's side of the family, which is fairly small. I've got my dad's side of the family that's quite big. And I've got my girlfriend's family that's huge yeah. as well. No, so it's basically yeah. going to be a, well, where do we do Oh, Christmas, yeah, no, ab- you know? see, that is absolutely 100% a sensible thing to consider. But from what I understand, these people are saying that they're just going to not bother whatsoever. Yeah, it's just- do, what they're basically saying is you can do little Christmas. And little Christmases are nice. I remember when I, when I was a kid, it was small Christmases because I was an only child until I was 12. Yeah. And it was always like maybe five or six people. It was nice. I'm kind of looking forward to it. I know it. lots of people who they spend Christmas where it's just them and their partner. That's yeah. that's something I've personally never done, but that sounds nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you don't, you know, you you just as long as you've got some company. That's probably because we're both antisocial bastards. Though. Yeah, I mean, that's what it is. Yeah. But then the people who aren't are just deluded. So you know, there we go. It's extroverted introverts. I don't, think don't, is the just, thing here. Don't don't entirely give up on Christmas, you bastards. <laughs> we must have something. Yeah. <laughs> Let's get into some film news then. Really good one to start this week. A trailer has been released for the Clifford the Big Red Dog movie. <laughs> and very yeah, much like the... I'm not aware of whatsoever. No, so. well, let the Cinematalist <laughs> podcast inform you. But very much like the Sonic the Hedgehog movie, the trailer has set the internet uh, aghast, should we say, because Clifford the Big Red Dog, and it's an interesting stylistic choice, is a gigantic Labrador, CGI Labrador, that basically has been spray painted red and the oh. internet has reacted in horror. I watched the teaser trailer earlier and yeah, you can you can see the point actually. Do you remember the cartoons? Vaguely. You speak about when my little sister was born when I was 12. And so I went through another generation of watching that generation's kids program because it was on in the background. Clifford the Big Red Dog was a big cartoon dog that was the size of like a house. Whereas in this, he's just a particularly large spray painted red Labrador and the internet is not happy. When you say particularly large, i.e. smaller than the size of a house. Yes, that is one of the things that people are complaining mm. about is the whole point of Clifford the Big Red Dogs is really fucking huge. And he's not, well, he's huge for a dog. I mean, if you saw him, you go, there's something wrong with that dog. But he's not house-sized. Was he like the size of a grizzly bear then? Something like that, yeah. Still pretty freakish, but... It sounds like it's not faithful to the source material. And to be honest, it sounds like it's not a film for you and me. Right? <laughs> I, I know what's going to happen. I'll be the one that ends up reviewing that. <laughs> well, just make sure that you're pissed and stunned and it won't be such an Yeah, but it'll probably be all right. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen weirder things than big red dogs. Uh, Barack Obama has given his approval for Drake to play him in a film biopic of his life. Drake? Drake, yeah. I didn't know this. Apparently Drake started out as an actor before becoming a, in quotes, musician. What? <laughs> I think basically what this is, is someone said to Barack Obama, oh, Drake really wants to play you. And Barack Obama's gone, oh, yeah, sure, fine. And that's the entirety of the story here. But yeah, you know what the internet's like. There may well be a push for this at some point. The Barack Obama biopic played by somebody who, as best as I can tell, has been in a couple of TV things. I think. If, Drake- if you're going to get anyone to play Barack Obama, and this is predicated on the fact that he's one of the few, if not the only person I've seen do a half-decent impression of him would be Jordan Peele. Yeah. I mean, maybe there's a high... That is a fantastic impression. Yeah, it is. It's a great... I mean, okay, maybe there's... But you'd never be able to get away from the fact that he played, obviously, a funny version of the president. You'd never be able to do a serious thing because his version of it is for laughs. It'd be it? a ballsy attempt, though, to yeah. try and Although I would watch sort of dramatic... I would watch the Obama administration, the comedy. You know, a feature, oh, yeah, a feature-length version well, would be great. I'd pick something that was infused with dra- dramatic weight or something that was goofy and ridiculous over... I'm sorry, Drake... 
Yeah. <laughs> I, th- I think there are better choices, you know. But there you Jesus, go. I mean, for a start, he's Canadian. He doesn't. He doesn't look like Obama. <laughs> he does. I, I mean, I am really hard pressed to imagine him sounding like Obama. But as always, can't knock it until it's been seen. So I won't, you know, indict it before it's even, you know, in fruition. You can do. We can all do better than Drake, though, yeah. on so many levels. <laughs> Uh, we spoke about Tenet a little while ago. You loved it. I never got a chance to see it. Right. You, you perfectly managed to time it in that window where the cinemas were open. And then right when Tenet was getting its most hype, everything shut back down again. You couldn't go. That's exactly right. So still haven't seen it. Apparently, they have now announced uh, how you can watch Tenet from home. There's going to be a Blu-ray release and a DVD release as well. I didn't even realise DVDs for big new releases were a thing. But there'll be a DVD release of... Uh, re- release? Release? A release. A release. A release of Tenet, the DVD and Blu-ray, and there's a 4H, uh, sorry, a 4K UHD combo pack as well. And all of these items can be pre-ordered on November the 10th. So that was the start of this month. We're on the 26th today. And other than that, streaming online looks like it's going to end up on HBO Max, i.e. the streaming service that nobody has. Well, that's a bit strange. I think the only reason <laughs> people got an HBO Max subscription was when the last season of Game of Thrones was on. I remember seeing the statistics. Their subscriber numbers just fell off a cliff as soon as Game of Thrones ended. Everyone's like, well, that was shit. And what's the point of keeping this anymore? (laughs) Well, I mean, I imagine, has that got all of HBO's content on HBO Max? I think so, yeah. What what about all these people who have never seen The Sopranos, who have never seen Curb? That's true. There's still some good shit on there that's worth holding on to. I think, because, yeah, for a long time, HBO were the byword for great modern TV productions. They seem to have dropped the ball a little bit in recent years. Yeah, well, what was the slogan? Was it like, uh, this isn't television, this is HBO? Yeah. And yeah, I think, as you say, the finale of Game of Thrones has taken the uh, clout out of that, that out of that slogan a little bit. I'm trying to think of the last thing I watched that was an HBO original production <coughs> that I really, really loved. I think, got a funny feeling Silicon Valley was released on HBO. Possibly. You ever see um, The Night Of with Riz Ahmed? No. Was the executive producer was Gandolfini on it, actually. That's really good. Oh, yeah. That's really worth checking out. But yeah, I think a lot of people were expecting there to be sort of one-off box office things and perhaps something with a wider net than HBO. But yeah, HBO Max, apparently. Um, However, both AT&T and Warner Brothers have yet to comment on this theory, but that's the insider information, essentially, is that it's very likely to be HBO getting the exclusive streaming rights. Sounds a little bit strange, but okay then. People are just going to pirate it. Yeah, of course they They're just going to pirate it immediately. We don't, this is the problem with these kind of business models where everything now is so segmented in terms of the streaming market. When the streaming market was originally a thing, it was great because there was only like two or three big providers and they were all about £6 a month. So you could spend £18 a month and get 90% of the good content coming out. Now everything's been spread apart again. Because big corporations, not saying Netflix wasn't a big corporation, but the real big media giants have now jumped on this. Now there's 85 different streaming platforms. People are going, well, I can't afford all of these. So inevitably, if I want to see the latest stuff, I'm going to have to pirate it. So it's just pushing people back to the piracy model. Well, yeah, if you have the most cursory navigation of the World Wide Web, you notice that as soon as the latest hyped Netflix production goes live for people to watch, bang, it's on a torrenting site. Yeah. Or, you know, Netflix... Select any streaming platform, yeah. Bang, you'll find it on a torrent site. I think there should be more sort of one-off services where you just pay, you get individual episodes or whatever, but they're a pound each. I think they make far more money that way Mm. rather than, oh, well, there's only one TV show I'm really interested on this streaming platform, but what's the point of spending £15 a month on it? I'll just go and pirate it anyway. Whereas if it was like a pound an episode, you might go, oh, fuck it, maybe maybe I'll buy a few and see if I like it, and then you end up buying the whole series or whatever. I don't think the model's right there. And I don't like this whole thing of sectioning off content. That's why so many people pirate things is because the, the content is so sectioned off. You can't possibly, unless you're putting in a ridiculous wage, afford all of it. And people go, oh, well, then you shouldn't have access to all of it. But, but, but there's always going to be a workaround. The studios really need to get that into their head. that They're actually pushing people towards piracy by splitting the market. This is, a, this is something that never ceases to amaze me when people who say what you just said, oh, well, they shouldn't have access to it. Yeah, but that's, that's not a pragmatic approach. I don't think you should do this, therefore you people won't do it. That's not living in reality. If they've got no money, they're not going to pay for it anyway, are they? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it just becomes a matter of do I see it or do I not? Yeah. They should appeal to the better age of their nature and not, not steal things. <laughs> Good little boys and girls. 
And yet one of the things that happened last year was that Disney bought the rights to 20th Century Fox's film and TV catalogue. Yeah. Which has put some interesting spins on certain uh, Fox characters, for example. Uh, Deadpool is now part of the Disney universe. That's pretty bizarre. And what they want to do, of course, is to put Deadpool in with their MCU. Because Deadpool obviously was a Marvel character and he appeared in the same comics as Spider-Man and all the other MCU characters you can name. However, Deadpool is, of course, very, very R-rated, which has put them in a little bit of a bind. <laughs> yeah. So what we're essentially looking at here is that Deadpool is about to be put into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. They're debating at the moment how to do it. And work is moving forward on Deadpool 3, but it is essentially going to be a Disney production there's going to be Ryan Reynolds doing as much swearing, sex jokes and hyper-violence as they can fit into an R-rated Disney film. This will be interesting to watch. Is such a thing as an R-rated Disney film or is this going to be the inaugural one? I don't know how they're going to get around this. This is either going to take Disney compromising on their values and I used the word Disney and values in the sentence. Very, It's a very Mm. weird thing to put together, Disney and values because they portray themselves as a super family-friendly organisation and they're one of the most corporate greed run-for-profit organisations the world has ever seen. Yeah, Disney also always, like, sort of draws a wry smile for me, because when I see a lot of people who uh, virtue signal around uh, certain media controversies, it seems that they always seem to forget that media was founded and operated for a long time by raving anti-Semites. Yeah. They don't seem to mind that. Good old, other, other people trip up and they never leave them alone about it. <laughs> good old Disney family values. But yeah, I'd be very interested to see what they end up doing with Deadpool because it seems completely at odds with the super family-friendly image that Disney is so desperate to maintain. So that should make for either a really toned-down Deadpool, in which case it'll get savaged, or they're going to have to go for it and get the complaints of a million Karens yeah, and they go. It's part of the. It's part of the. My son likes all the Spider-Man films, and he desperately wants to see Deadpool, so I let him see it. And then he chops somebody's head off and called somebody. A, you know, it's, <laughs> it's going to be that, isn't it? So yeah, that should be fun. Another property they bought, of course, 20th Century Fox, which is now Disney, is uh, Predator. Predator is now a Disney villain, <laughs> <laughs> and a uh, a new Predator movie has been announced. With the director of 10 Cloverfield Lane, Dan Trachtenberg, <laughs> is going to be doing the new Predator movie. I quite enjoyed 10 Cloverfield Lane. It seemed to be a little bit divisive, but I had a good time. Yeah, yeah, not a bad action movie. In fact, he's done some okay action movies. And the last Predator film showed so much promise and ended up being terrible. Uh, I didn't mind Predators a few years back. It wasn't a great film, but it was perfectly passable. When you said the last Predator film, which one are you referring to? The one that came out in 2018? Yeah, it was just called Predator, I believe. Yeah, the one, we mean the one with like the 12 foot tall CGI Predator. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that that trailer for that got me quite excited. And then I, it was one of those films where I watched it and realized the only interesting bits in it were in the trailer. That could have done a lot better. Yeah, the the 2010 Predators. I thought that was actually a. There was a lot about that. There was actually a lovely little homage to the 87 one. It had some interesting ideas. It moved at a decent pace. It wasn't particularly compelling, but there were some nice fight scenes, nice fight. That's, uh, you know, it's one of those franchises as well, I think, where everybody who's a fan of it is just going, just please make it just half decent is fine. We'll take half decent. It doesn't need to be stunning anymore. That franchise, particularly with the Alien versus Predator films, has been so badly handled for such a long time now that half decent is fine we'll take half decent so but yeah it will be the disney version of predator so again an r-rated character that is now under the disney umbrella i wonder how that will affect uh, (laughs) anything and everything else and my last little bit of news this week we did a john carpenter it's not really a bit of news but i just saw it on the internet and thought it was worth mentioning we did a john carpenter special on the premium podcast many many moons ago now big fans of john carpenter on this podcast and apparently he is a huge fan of the new Assassin's Creed game. He has been tweeting about it a lot recently. Uh, this is Assassin's Creed Valhalla that everyone's banging on about. This is Assassin's Creed except Vikings. And John Carpenter, who is a huge fan of video games, has been tweeting about it. I just, <laughs> Personally, I just like the idea that John Carpenter is just sitting back on his big pile of money playing video games. He's a really, pretty cool. Uh, he's a really cool guy, John Carpenter. Like, not only, you know, because as you say, we've been... Both big fans of him, I certainly am. But just as a person, when you watch in any kind of interface with him, he just seems like a really cool dude to be in the company yes. of. You know, very easygoing, really likes to just chill out. This isn't even news, really. This should be in the <laughs> trivia section. But yeah, I just yeah. thought it was funny. that I just like I like the idea 
of older dudes <clears throat> sitting back playing video games and enjoying them as much as because video games aren't a young man's game anymore. No, nah. it's you know, all generations. I quite like the idea that he's just sitting back in his mansion somewhere, locked down, going fuck it. I'll just play some games. We, he's one of those people who never grew in, grew into any sort of that you know kind of self-appointed patrician stuffiness that a lot of artists have. No, he's always been a bit cool. Isn't remember he? seeing uh, just as a, as a Carpenter as a brief uh, tidbit. I remember watching an interview with him where he talks about how he stopped going to the Masters of Horror dinner because there was that great anthology series, The Masters of Horror, where. Mm. Him, Wes Craven, Don Cascarelli, they directed various episodes. And he said he went along one year. David Cronenberg was holding court there and he was taking himself so seriously. And Carpenter was just like, before we just used to insult each other and tell jokes and get drunk. He's like, fuck this, I'm not doing this shit anymore. <laughs> and speaking of Cronenberg, actually, I'm going to do a review of one of the new episodes of Star Trek Discovery later. Remind me of David Cronenberg. Remind you of David Cronenberg. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'll know where to go. He's pertinent to it. Yes, he is indeed. Okay. Okie dokie then. Well, let's get on with the reviews. Liam, as <clears> usual, you have a couple. What are we doing first? Yeah, we've got a couple of new ones here. Wildly divergent in every way possible. Uh, first one up, I watched Fat Man. Oh, I've been looking forward to this. <laughs> the, uh, yeah, the latest Mel Gibson film directed by the Nelms Brothers. This stars Mel Gibson as Father Christmas, or if you want to call him... <laughs> Santa sold, Claus sold yeah. in in the film he goes by the moniker Chris Kringle. This is very much uh, a rendering of the Santa Claus legend where they've injected as much verisimilitude into it as they reasonably could. So it's something of it it's an interesting sort of aspect about it because Chris Kringle doesn't live in Antarctica or the North Pole. He lives in a little stretch just outside of a small town in Alaska. So there's um, that's not nowhere near the North Pole, is it? Well, I mean, fairly. Yeah, it's cold. It's cold. It's at the top of the world and it's snowy. I mean, it's kind of it's kind of close. North, North, North and South Pole are virtually unpopulated. Aren't so they? he's an American Santa. Yes, as yeah, in he's yeah, literally yes. a US citizen. Yes, yes, very right. much, very much an American Santa as opposed to a nationless legendary being. Yeah, lives in, living and working in Alaska. He has a PO box. He also has a contract with the US government, who have an interest share in his toy delivery and <laughs> business. And it's, he lives on a farmstead, and in this great big shed, you've got all of his elves in there. On a shed in his back garden. Where a big shelf, and it's like a... I know there's always been that joke about uh, <clears throat> Father Christmas uses slave labour and child labour. Is Mel Gibson literally doing it in Fat Man? Really, yeah. <laughs> Locked up in a shed in the back. Yeah, because this film has a very, very strange tone, so there is something of an inflection of, um, I don't know, <laughs> worker coercion to it. <laughs> it gets even worse as it progresses. But... So, Bill Gibson is Chris Kringle. Chris is not having a good time of it lately. The subsidy that he gets from the US government has been slowly decreasing because he keeps having to deliver coal to the naughty kids. And kids are getting naughtier and naughtier. And the government officials inform him, the subsidy that we give you is provident on the volume of presents created and delivered. So, if you keep giving out coal... We, we, know, we don't have any revenue for that. We don't have any remuneration for you because we're not gaining anything from it. So is Santa also contributing to global warming by fueling the coal industry? Um, that element wasn't actually... There's a lot of subtext it. here. Yeah. Santa's a dark that, character. That element I never thought really, about that before. That, that element, He's propping up the coal yeah, industry. That's, there, there's, a good, there's a good argument to be made there, I think, but I don't recall that coming up in the film in any capacity. I should have been in the writer's room. But... <laughs> but yeah, so the government officials inform him that, yeah, they, they're giving him half his annual subsidy because he keeps delivering more coal than presents and he does his milk. He's like, I can't help it if some kids deserve coal. This is bullshit. This isn't even enough to turn the power on. Chris's wife, Ruth, played by the great Marianne Jean-Baptiste, is tries to be a bit of a measuring influence and tries to get him out of his ornery and cranky misanthropy and remind him that he used to love his job and he used to believe in humanity and he used to be a philanthrope and not a misanthrope and Mel Gibson goes to his local bar where it's kind of ambiguous as to people really know who he is and he knocks back shots and he's like fucking Christmas little shits pricks and um, so the military come in and the military uh, make a proposition to Chris and it's this we will give you an enormous subsidy 
something that will cover the shortfall that you've been given just now if you engage in a two-month contract with us. And the two-month contract with us is your elves are going to get to work making control panels for our new, our new fighter aircraft. <laughs> <laughs> and this involves round-the-clock security rotation. They put it just gets worse. Yes, they put, <laughs> they put metal detectors in the facility they 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 use scissors to cut off the uh, the shoe bells, the bells on the top of the elf shoes because they set off the metal detector. <laughs> they get uh, handprint IDs to have to come into the the factory every day. And there's a scene where the military commander, who is very enamoured with the Kringle operation and the way that not only Chris Kringle and the elves are organised, but also how they seem to have some very a strong work ethic. They they very they take their work very seriously, a lot of pride in their work and a lot of positive mental attitude. And there's a sequence where the elves are sitting down at lunch hour and they are just eating their regular daily meals just consist of Christmas treats, you know, cakes and loads of stuff like that and the military commander just sits there and goes, I see what counts for the uh, pallid complexion and the short hike. You people need vegetables and fruit and you need like a minimum of six six hours sleep a night and you need exercise. And it's just like, okay, this is just really weird. While all this is going on, if that wasn't enough, there is this little shit named Billy Weenan, played by Chance Hurstfield. And he is a very bratty, sociopathic 10-year-old boy who basically he hates losing. He hates losing to the extent that when a girl wins the school science fair in place of him. He hires a, a ruthless enforcer, played by good old Walton Goggins, to help him intimidate her into basically admitting that she cheated and to tell the principal that the first place woman belongs to young Billy. He rightfully owns it. This is a really, really nasty kid who gets his way via the most heinous means possible. So Billy's a nasty little shit. Unsurprisingly, he gets a lump of coal delivered by Santa. And he runs outside and goes, You're going to regret this, Santa! And he calls up Walton Goggins and says to Walton Goggins, I want you to kill Santa Claus. And Walton Goggins goes, Yeah, okay. And that basically tells you where we are. Um, this was a really, really baffling film. <laughs> it's a description that I'm totally sold on this. I mean, that's a lot of really good ideas. Can I tell you something? There's one element that actually makes this film really watchable, and it is Walton Goggins. His performance, as he's credited as Skinny Man, his performance as Billy's hired gun, you know, slash bodyguard, slash enforcer, slash assassin, whatever you want to call him, he is really good. He's got great intimidating screen presence. He's got really good comic delivery because Walton Goggins, a lot of people will be familiar with Walton Goggins as somebody who usually inhabits rather sinister characters, intimidating characters. And his deadpan menace is really, really snappy and well done. He pulls off this role really well. And a lot of the moments, well, essentially all of the moments where I laughed out loud were courtesy of Walton Goggins. Outside of that, tone of Fat Man is all over the place. It can't actually decide whether it wants to be a consistent black comedy or whether it wants to be some kind of pathos-ridden drama. Oh, that's a shame. Because <clears throat> as a straight-up black comedy, that sounds fantastic. Well, this is the thing. But if you're going to mix it and muddy it with... Sometimes you just need to be straight ahead with a black comedy. There are plenty of scenes in this where Mel Gibson and Marianne Jean-Baptiste as Chris and Ruth Kringle, they're kind of having sort of lamentable bickering that you'd find amongst a couple and I'm sitting there thinking where's the how does this relate to the genre and objective of the film this just seems like yeah this is like listening to a guy who's miserable because he's in a dead-end job and he's middle-aged arguing with his wife about something which would be very uh, fitting in you know maybe some kitchen sink drama but in this film, which when you look at the poster and the general synopsis, gives the impression that it's going to be something in the key of, say, Bad Santa. Sure, yeah. You think it's going to have a consistently eccentric, dark vein of humour running through it. That, and that only materialises in Walton Goggins. The rest of it is really strange and nothing really connects. So the film is asking us to take Mel Gibson as Chris Kringle seriously. Yes. That's never going to happen, is it? Yeah. That's not going to work. With, with moments of levity that don't have any footing, it's, it's, a, it's a really strange one, this. I got through it and ultimately 
because of Walton Goggins' performance, I kind of sat there and went, yeah, that weren't bad. But simultaneously, I thought, that is one of the strangest fucking films I've ever seen. And I put that in my review on the blog as well, because it was, it was really, really strange. I've never seen a rendering of Santa Claus like that. And there have been some odd Christmas films over the years. But I, I, yeah, I just can't really make head nor tail of it. So sometimes strangest thing you've ever seen is a recommendation. Is this a recommendation? Should people watch it? Mm, probably not, actually. I mean, I my closing paragraph in the write-up is you should probably give it a spin due to the performance of Walton Goggins and for the novelty factor. But in terms of is this something that you should make an effort to see? No. Is it something that if you stumble upon it by accident, you know, kind of give it a whirl to sort of see if you can drink it in and voice your interpretations of it? Because it really just threw me. I just, I couldn't, I can't work out what the intention of the film is. I don't think I've ever just looking at your facial expressions as well. I don't think I've ever seen you so puzzled by a film before. Normally you've got a bang on like why you think it's good, why you think it's bad. This just seems to have thrown you for a loop. When when Mel as Chris Kringle goes into the factory to announce the changes that are going to be made around here, i.e. the military operation and the new contract they're undertaking and what that's going to consist of, it has... (laughs) has Chris Kringle standing on an upper ledge addressing all of the elves who are in formation on the ground and getting teary-eyed talking about the changes that are going to be made. And it's a moment that's supposed to have dramatic weight to it with all the elves and their little shoe bells. (laughs) It's, It's really fucking odd. Honestly, it's really, really bizarre. I'm still going to watch it. No, I have to see this. You should watch... Look, yeah, so you should watch it if you can access it. I know we both watch a lot, a lot of movies. And you go more for television more consistently than I do, anyway. But if you can get access to Fat Man, I definitely like to hear your thoughts on it because I, I'm still sort of trying to process it now because <laughs> there's such a schism. There's such a schism because Walton Goggins, his characterization is great. He works really, really well. And to some extent, Chance Hurstfield as Billy Wingman does, but all of the stuff with the, the the military operation that Chris Kringle doesn't really have any choice but to agree to, and the scenes of domesticity between Mel Gibson and John Baptist, it's really jarring, strange, head scratching, mental breakdown tier shit. <laughs> so, yeah, Fair I, enough. I just don't, I just don't get it, man. It's just <laughs> super weird. But yeah, check it out. Can I put a film review in between yours? Yeah, go ahead. We're going to do a little bit of TV. Yeah, please do. It's going to be catch-up stuff. Yeah. And I promised last week that we were going to do this because last week I went to do some trivia based off of Greenland and the fact that it was about comets and then realised that there is a new Werner Herzog documentary out called Fireball. Oh, Um, yes. Yeah, yeah. We haven't seen it yet. I said, you know what? We're going to save that trivia for next week once I've seen Fireball, which I watched last night. So, yeah, this is called Fireball, Visitors from Darker Worlds. And it is a Werner Herzog documentary. Mm. Now, this is the point where the audience splits because some people will have seen Werner Herzog work before and some people will be unaware. So for the people that are unaware of Werner Herzog's work, strap yourself in because it's got him all over it. That narration that is so strained and yet very dark (laughs) as if he's seen into the eyes of the soul of many (laughs) immediately like my girlfriend has never seen a Werner Herzog documentary before and watching her listen to the narration for the first time is quite interesting because he's got this no one sounds quite like Werner Herzog also no one's got Werner Herzog's eye for better or for worse and he's often done this documentary work that is he's done a lot of uh, fictional work as well he's done film stuff he's done TV stuff I personally think he's brilliant as a documentary maker and his films go up and down all over the place but this is a Werner Herzog documentary so it's got all of his weirdness and his mannerisms and his sort of human slants. So basically where we are with this, he's investigating the byproducts of asteroids and comets, which are meteorites, the Mm. little bits of rock that fall from the sky. Sometimes, of course, these are very tiny, and sometimes these are so huge as to wipe out the dinosaurs. And what Werner is trying to do here is investigate not only the science of meteorites and why that's fascinating, but also the cultural effect. So he's always got, he comes at this sort of um, humanistic angle to all degrees with his work. Every single 
piece of his work has got this element of how does that relate to us as human beings? What does this mean for us on a metaphorical sense? How does this affect us, perhaps in ways we don't realise in terms of our culture and our values? So there's investigations into tribal cultures that um, worship comets and think that their ancestors moving across the sky. There's a visit to Yucatan province in Mexico, which is, we believe, the site where the asteroid that well, the meteorites that killed the dinosaurs landed. Mm. There's this huge crater there, and that's believed to be the site that caused that extinction event. And it's also co-directed this by a guy called uh, Clive Oppenheimer. Now, Werner Herzog did a documentary a few years ago on volcanoes, and Clive Oppenheimer was part of that as well. He's basically your standard, straight-out-of-the-box British scientist. Yeah. With his little shirt and his little you know, slacks, Wandering around going, that's very interesting, that's very interesting. But he's, <laughs> he's in front of the camera for the majority of the film. Werner is behind the camera for... He makes one interjection at one point when a scientist says, we're essentially all made up of stardust. We are stardust. And Werner Herzog interjects, and he actually does a little voiceover part beforehand going, this is the only part of the film where I felt the need to put myself on camera. And he goes... Uh, I'd like to point out that I am not made of stardust. I am Bavarian. (laughs) (laughs) It's got that great sort of... This is interesting because what it is, it's half quite dry panorama documentary on the interesting things about meteorites. So you've got all this sort of heavy science. And it's half Werner Herzog looking at the world through his strangely twisted eyes. And the marriage between the two is actually quite successful. I learned some amazing stuff in this. There's this guy out in um, Norway... That is, he's a famous jazz musician, but he started getting interested in meteorites as a hobby because he went out one morning to, he had a breakfast table in his back garden. He went and sat down at his breakfast table and noticed there was a small black rock sitting on his table and he wondered where it might have come from. And he investigated more into it and it was a micrometeorite. And so what he did is he found a nearby sports stadium that's got a huge roof. And he started going across the roof with this magnet in a plastic bag, dragging it across the roof to see whether anything metallic was picked up. He started finding all of these tiny micrometeorites. And what he essentially did was invented an entirely new form of science because no one had really looked into these and studied these micrometeorites before. And they are essentially everywhere. This guy's just picking them up off a roof which blows your mind and makes you think about, well, how many have I walked past? How many have I accidentally kicked? These are pieces of something that's potentially four or five billion years old that was created at the creation of... I mean, some of these could potentially go back to the creation of the universe, and they are raining down on our planet constantly, and we have sort of no idea about it. And then when you look at them under a microscope, you can see that they've actually got teardrop shapes. Well, micrometeorites uh, often go 20 times as fast as a rifle bullet as they're coming through the atmosphere, which creates this strange shape of them. And so there's all these wonderful bits of science. And there's a bit about five-dimensional tesseracts and things like that. Where, and Werner Herzog interrupts at this point as well and goes, this is so complicated. We will not torture you with the details. <laughs> <laughs> but there's so many levels to this because you can kind of laugh at Werner Herzog being silly. And he's being knowingly silly as well. It's always a bit of his wry German sense of humour running through everything. And it's got his humanistic angle, but it's also got the panorama science stuff. I found it really compelling, really fascinating. It's sort of a best of both worlds thing. Imagine a panorama documentary on meteorites made by Werner Herzog and you have Fireball. I found it fascinating and I found it quite moving at points as well. And at points, eerie. There's always an eerie nature to Herzog's work. Particularly in the um, early half of the documentary, there's a lot of scraping strings and solitary violins. And it's all very maudlin and kind of uh, Ingmar Bergman, Seventh Seal stuff. You know, that's sort of infused, which adds to the weird, surreal nature of the fact that we're talking about interstellar objects and what we can learn about. I saw a review earlier. I'm sorry to crib this from someone else's review, but I thought it was perfect. It was a user review. And somebody said, I should have the name here, actually. Somebody said, the interesting thing about meteorites is they're like pieces of a puzzle. And it reveals to us as human beings that we are just another piece of that puzzle. The universe is this huge puzzle that we don't understand. And meteorites remind us that we are a tiny part of it. And there's all these tiny little pieces that give clues and hints as to this huge universe around us that we don't really think about. We're so enwrapped in our own little lives, standing on a rock. You don't think about all the other huge pieces of rock slamming into each other in the formation. So it's super existential stuff. I thought it was absolutely brilliant. I think as well, if you haven't watched Herzog stuff before, and you should, this is a nice stepping stone because it's one of his milder pieces of works. There's some of his work is very, very shocking and deliberately so, and challenging as well. 
And I'd highly recommend you watch this stuff for that reason. However, if you're a Herzog virgin, this is a great entry point and a very fascinating, compelling subject. I thought it was a very successful documentary. I liked it a lot. See, I'm a, when you say that for you his films go up and down, see, I'm very much a proponent of Herzog in that capacity. I, really, I think he's brilliant. I love his films mm. and I love them for all of the reasons you cited. For n- Number one, because he is quite mad. Yeah. And I think that, but that, I, I think that his work wouldn't be singular if he were not. The fact that his madness does permeate everything, I think, has created some of the best uh, visual art of any kind. Well, I've seen. As I said earlier, he's got a, a twisted eye. And I think that's really key because, in a way, having that twisted eye, there are so many documentaries where the documentary maker is trying so hard not to put any of their personality into it in the hope that that doesn't colour the subject and makes it truer. I think Herzog's actually got a better balance of it and that his personality <clears throat> and that twisted way of looking at things that he has does come through. But that twisted vision, in a weird way, because it is personal to him, actually gets you closer to a truth that he thinks about that perhaps you hadn't realised. Does that make sense, or am I? Yeah, no, it does. It does make sense because it's uh, it's divergent to the kind of interjection that you would call narcissistic. Because mm. he's not interjecting with something shallow and navel gazing. He's actually interjecting with something lateral. Yeah, and it encourages you to see the things that he's documenting through the concepts that he's thought about. Yeah. So you're, you're getting his ideas through it as well. But I wouldn't ever say it was actually colouring the subject, which is really interesting. I can't think of another filmmaker like him. And I would highly encourage anybody that hasn't seen Herzog stuff, this is your entry point. Because I can guarantee you'll watch this, come at the end and go, hmm, I should check out what else he's done. Oh, he's great. Yeah, absolutely, mate. So yeah, it was superb stuff. I'd highly really recommend it. Fireball, I need to check that one out. Mm. You'll, you'll love it. It's funny. It is funny. Yeah, well, Herzog is funny. You know, he's, I mean, he's he's funny, ha-ha, and funny mental. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Liam, sorry to interrupt. What's your no, second review this no, week? No, not at all. No, thank you for sharing it. Yeah, so um, in as I was saying, in enormous contrast to uh, Fat Man, <laughs> uh, the other new release that I watched is The Nest. It's a brand new film written and directed by Sean Durkin. And this stars Jude Law as Rory O'Hara, who is an equities trader, British expat living in America, married to Alison, played by Kerry Coon, American wife, American stepdaughter, and they have a son together as well. And he's been living in the States for quite a while now, and we become privy to the fact that he initially moved over there because he thought the United Kingdom had dried up in terms of lucrative business potential. And he says to his wife, we should move back to the UK. Because that place, that, by the way, this is set in the 1980s, so it's set at the height of the Thatcher and Reagan era, and so he bad times. Yeah, well, bad times, but he's an equities trader, so he's somebody, oh, good times for him. Then, he's yeah, somebody yeah. with he's somebody with the kind of moolah and connections where he can get his fingers in a lot of pies and exploit filthy things. lucre, filthy lucre. Yeah, exploit the lots of things, make himself a lot of money, give him and his family a nice plush fund to sit on their asses and do nothing for the rest of their lives. So he proposes this to his wife, Alison. Alison says, this is going to be our fourth move in 10 years. Can we not just fucking settle? And Rory says, no, 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 come on. This is going to be good. We can can go over, go back over there. We can be rich. You know, I can go back to my old company. I've got the connections. I've got the nows to make this kind of thing work. Let's go back. It will be lovely. You'll love it. And we won't have to worry about things again. Because Alison works as a, she teaches horseback riding. And one of the things he's like, he's, he's like, don't fucking teach horseback riding for someone else. We can go over to the UK. You can get your own fucking stables. You can get your own orders. You can be your own boss. Let's be entrepreneurial. Let's work for ourselves. And so she agrees. And they relocate to a lovely big manor, country store in the outskirts of Surrey. Or just within Surrey, and Rory goes back to work, re-ingratiates himself with his old companies and, and colleagues that he, who have a very high opinion of him and say, this guy used to make so much dough for us. It's great to have him back on board. And his kids and Alison try to become sort of acclimatised to the landscape. Um, the thing with The Nest is that it's very much a mood piece. It's in the flavour of European art house cinema because... It's got, there's a lot of allegorical stuff going on here about the consequences of delusional social climbing and greed and forgetting that home is where the heart is. And so there's a lot of dysfunction and marital strife and this initial veneer of perfection of this family that both Rory has of himself and his family, the viewer are privy to of Rory and his family having this high-flying successful existence. And that starts to come apart at the seams with 
the stress that all of them endure. Rory's trying to cajole his boss into these risky new deals that he rides everything on, but it comes sort of crashing down on him too late when he realises that he's his confidence is not matched by, necessarily matched by the other people he works with. So he's digging himself a bigger financial hole. Alison and the kids feel very alienated because they've grown up in the United States and now they're smack bang in the middle of the home counties where they've got to put uniforms on to go to school and they don't really know anyone. And so it's that it's that perfection coming apart at the seams. And it's very much a mood piece that is predicated on character strife as opposed to any jarring or surprising events happening instead of, you know, oh, holy shit, what just happened there? Any, any big or inspiring terms in the narrative. It's not that. It's very much a character drama and a moody European art piece. But I really liked it. I really liked it. And I liked it because of uh, the performances of Jude Law and Carrie Coon. I thought they were fucking excellent. It really, really authentic familial relationships going on there. Beautiful cinematography by uh, Matyash Odeli. Like, the way he captures English rural locales and the shots of their home in London in general. It's got this real crisp visual style and it helps the films the film's got something of an ominous tone even though it's not actually a horror or a thriller it always has this sense of daunting atmosphere which uh, ultimately served it quite well i think whilst watching it i thought this has got quite an unusual key to it the way that things are unfolding it feels like it's sort of building to something incredibly shocking but it doesn't but upon reflection it fit the moods in that it uh, it actually amplifies the disturbing nature of this family unraveling. Because when you, you go from, take them at the beginning, the O'Hara's at the beginning, and as you traverse their existential landscape, the kind of things that happen to them as they go up and down, and the emotions that they voice, it's quite unsettling to watch them, to watch them come apart at the seams, as I say. But uh, yeah, I really, really liked this one. It's uh, it's it's a very slow burner, but I think it will reward the patient viewer. As I said, Jude Law and Carrie Coon are really good in it. They're both. I've always thought Jude Law um, had like some like real mega talent, uh, especially uh, within the twenty first century. I didn't re- maybe didn't f- feel that way when I watched a lot of his nineties stuff. But as he's come into things like Side Effects by Steven Soderbergh and that, the guy really does have some insane chops in him, and he's very, very good in this. Carrie Coon's a lot people know her from starring in Fargo and she was obviously Affleck's sister in Gone Girl. She is a superb actress. So yeah, this is very much carried by the performances and it does require you to invest patience and just allow yourself to drink in everything that's taking place on screen, visually, sonically, and yes, a mood piece through and through, but for my money, a very, very good one and one that had moved me by the time that the end credits rolled. Great stuff. So, yeah, I, The Nest, I really liked The Nest. I, th- I think very cinematic, very resonant, just a very, very good motion picture. Okay, TV of the week then, and only a short bit this week because, well, I've been covering The Mandalorian recently, episode by episode, and I shall do here again. And one thing I haven't been covering, although I reviewed it in its entirety recently, is uh, Star Trek Discovery. And the new season is running at the moment, season three. And I wanted to talk about one episode in particular, and this is episode five. I've been thinking ever since I watched this episode, how the hell I'm going to do this. Right, okay. (laughs) Because as I pointed out in my Discovery review, so much happens in this show that I'm going to have to spoil some stuff. Right. And so quite a few people messaged me after my Discovery review saying, I really like that. I'm definitely going to start checking out Star Trek Discovery. So if you're one of those people, I'm only going to be here for about five minutes. Okay, so you can skip forward a bit. And it's absolutely essential in order to say what I'm going to say about this episode to tell you where we are. Well, if in you, if you can't circumvent it, then yeah, we're yeah. only going to be here for five minutes, guys. So just jump ahead a little bit and, and we're done. So, spoilers start now. In season three, we have gone forward into the future. So, Star Trek, of course, is in the future to begin with, but we are now 930 years. Futuria. Yes, we are. Yeah, future two, futuria. (laughs) We have gone 930 years past the original setting of Star Trek Discovery because in season two, a large part of that setup is they have to protect a, again, I'm I'm being vague here to try and minimize spoilers, protect some information that they have from falling into the wrong hands. And the only way to protect that information from falling into the wrong hands 
was to use some technology that they were investigating to jump themselves into the future where it couldn't be found mm. and thereby literally save the entire biological life in the universe is what they essentially had to do. So we're now 930 years past Discovery's tech. Discovery is completely fish out of water and a big part of Star Trek Discovery Season 3 is they're trying to find the Federation again because a lot's happened since then and the Federation is now this small enterprise. Like previously it was this huge galaxy, well, not galaxy, a quadrant-spanning network. Since then, a hell of a lot's happened. Starfleet's now very small, and they've had to try and get back to it. So episode five of Star Trek Discovery, which is called Die Trying, sees the Discovery meet back up with Starfleet, get interrogated a bit by Starfleet as to where the hell did you guys come from? We've got no record of a ship going missing because everyone covered it up to protect the information, to blah, 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 blah. Basically, this is is what I'm trying to get out here. It's full of plot holes. Right. Really, really full of plot holes. Now, when I watched this episode, I got to the end of it and I thought, that was a bit rubbish. (laughs) And then I started looking up other people's reviews, thinking, surely I can't be the only person. Actually, this has got fairly good reviews from the critics and a lot of fans pointing out how rubbish that episode was. Because this episode has five different plots going on. So you've got the meet back up with Starfleet. You've got one of the crews had a head injury when they got catapulted into the future and she's now going a bit mad. You've got... Michael Burnham, who's this definitely the series Mary Sue throughout this, so she can she's the woman that can do everything. And that's always been a bit of a contentious point in Discovery, but it's something you can gloss over because the plot moves so, quick, so quickly. She turned up in the future a year before Discovery did. And so she's adapted to this universe, and she's now turned into a bit of a cyberpunk badass who's a bit of a rebel and a bit on the edge and breaks orders constantly. Right. And so there's a constant interplay with that going on. Then you've got the fact that so they decide that they're Starfleet doesn't trust them. So in order to get Starfleet to trust them and allow them to keep their ship and keep their crew together, that they're going to take on a mission that Starfleet's got. And they're going to take it on as a rogue mission to prove that if they can go out and solve this problem, then they can come back and say, look how well we work. Aren't we an asset? You should keep us all together and use us and everything will be cool again, guys. And you've got another thing with uh, Michelle Yeoh, who's playing Georgiou, Philippa Georgiou. She's being interrogated by, and this is my link back here, uh, David Cronenberg, who plays a Starfleet sort of interrogation officer. And he's interrogating her because she's from a different universe, which is something that happened in the end of season one, beginning of season two. And it's all a mess. There's there's like five different plots going on. One of my criticisms of Discovery was that its plot exposition machine was moving far too quickly. And I said in my review that Star Trek has been known for doing that. It goes through a bit of techno babble and everything bounces along quickly and it quickly goes, forget about that, forget about this, let's keep moving with the plot, guys, let's keep moving with the plot. This has reached such a peak in episode five that nothing's got any weight anymore. You've got like five different plot lines going on at once. You've got Michael Burnham, the Mary Sue, who is now alternates in scenes between either being badass rebel woman or sometimes crying for no reason. Occasionally like an emotional moment happens as she starts crying. But then she's back to being a badass again. The show has gone schizophrenic. Maybe, maybe she's just fucking mental. Maybe you know, she might, might just be absolutely mental. I remember we talked about, you said something on the lines of, it's, it's like the writers were all in a room together, snorting lines of speed. Going, what can we do next? What can we do next? What can we do next? Yeah. This episode is like The Hangover. <laughs> where you wake up the next day and go, holy shit, what did we write? Like, I'll, I'll just just stuck, stick it all together with fucking staples and a masking tape. <laughs> and then we'll throw it all into one episode. This is worrying. Like, I've enjoyed season three so far. Season three is not bad, but episode five of this season actually throws into light all the flaws and the plot holes and this sort of inevitable clusterfuck that Discovery was in danger of becoming. And I really, really hope the show can turn it around because I like Discovery. I think it's a brilliant show. But five is a perfect example of if you, like we do, like watching stuff and trying to work out what's good about it and where it went wrong. Get up to date with Discovery, watch episode five and tell me that is not the consequences of your actions coming back to bite you. <laughs> because there's so much going on at this point and nothing knows where to go. Nobody knows who they are anymore. You've got characters starting to appear schizophrenic because they're trying to throw so many plot elements in at once that it really is spiralling into this sort of bumbling clusterfuck of a show. I have faith in it. I think the only thing you can really hang on to at this point, and this is quite interesting, is that Doug Jones plays Saru, who is, he was originally the first officer on the Shenzhou, then he was the first officer on Discovery, and now in the 32nd century, they've elected him to be captain. Now they're off in their new universe. Doug Jones's performance, and Saru as a character, is the linchpin that everything is desperately clinging onto, because he's trying to be 
the straight man amongst the madness and just trying to be a good staffing officer and do the best he can. So his performance is carrying everything. In, in a, and it's actually, in a weird way, Saru is carrying the show, not just the, <laughs> not just the discovery at the same time, which is quite bizarre. Meta stress. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really, really weird. So, I, again, I think Discovery's got the chance to write itself. I think there's good enough actors there. I think there's good enough ideas and great writing, etc. But wow, what a! I ended up coming out the end of that episode going, oh, wow, it really has lost it. And in one go, in one bite of the cherry, it's just all of a sudden spiralled into madness. And I'd be really interested to see how the ship writes itself, so to speak. How, just out of curiosity, how is old uh, Dave in his capacity as an interrogator? Uh, yeah, good. It's, yeah. He's only in it for about five minutes. Oh, okay. <laughs> because this episode is 55 minutes as long as well, which is the longest one of the season so far. And there's still too much stuff in it. So there's no, nothing gets the right amount of development. Yeah. yeah. Everything's, the, the exposition machine is turned up too fast. And it really has reached like a critical mass point. I don't even ask. No, it's just because I've always liked, obviously, primarily as a director, but I've I, I really, I've liked the little acting tidbits I've seen Cronenberg. It's perfectly so. fine. Yeah. That, I mean, that even threw me, even, that was an even weirder loop. Because I was sitting there trying to work out why this episode's crap. And then David Cronenberg turns out, like, what the fuck are you doing here? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, a, a bit of a mess, that one, guys. Can do better. And yeah, my weekly review of The Mandalorian. This is a nice and easy one to do. Only five minutes on this as well. This is, so chapter 12. So Mandalorian does it as individual vignettes, as we talked about before. So we're in season two. So this is episode four of season two, but episode 12 in total. Right. Uh, this is entitled The Siege, and it's directed by Carl Weathers. Uh, Carl Weathers? Mm-hmm. Wow, okay. And also, this is the return of Carl Weathers into The Mandalorian. He's also, again, he's in the first season. Yeah. And he's in this as well. This is basically the return of a few familiar faces. And he's directed it as well. Oh, so shit. the Razor Crest, the Mandalorian ship, is now all beaten up, barely made it off the last planet alive. He decides to go back to the first planet to get some repairs, run into some old friends. And while they're there, the, he is getting his ship repaired and he decides, well, doesn't decide, basically gets strong-armed by his old mates to go on a mission to a mysterious base nearby that's over the top of a volcano. So it's like a geothermal plant. They think it's abandoned. No one's quite sure what's going on there. But they need to take it down because it's they're thinking it's like an imperial base. Something very dodgy is obviously happening. They need to go over there and destroy this base. And they recruit the Mandalorian and say, look, we won't charge you anything for the repairs. But while you're here, could you help us out with this ship? Mm. Nice, easy setup on that one. Yeah. My criticism with the Mandalorian season two so far has been that the plot has stalled. And as soon as the episode starts and he's going along in his bashed up spaceship and he goes... Why don't we go back to that planet we were on previously? I thought, okay, so again, nothing's going to happen this episode, <laughs> but it's going to be good. I've liked every single, I've loved every single episode so far. Actually, I thought, okay, we're not going to move the plot on again. Actually, no. This has got a laboured first setup, and then once they get into the base and discover what's going on there, it actually moves the, the plot forward exponentially, which is really, really nice. And round about the halfway mark, it essentially turns into one gigantic chase sequence, very much a la Mad Max Fury Road except Star Wars. Oh, wow. Okay. And it is shot brilliantly. It's a superb chase sequence. It's an edgier seat chase sequence. The great thing about The Mandalorian is it just, it seems to be getting better and better and better as it goes on. I've loved every single episode of it. And every week, and we've talked about how it played with genre. This one is, yeah, it's a chase sequence, really. There's a setup. You get a reveal about the plot. And then you get this huge chase sequence. And you go, you could quite easily turn around and go, oh, well, that was that. This chase sequence is so brilliantly shot and so breathtaking and funny at points as well. There's nice little bits of humour injected in there that it's essentially The Mandalorian does Mad Max. And I'm so happy with this show overall. It's one of those, I kind of wish I wasn't reviewing it week by week, individual episode wise, because what I've essentially got myself into is that every week I have to turn up and say, The Mandalorian is brilliant. <laughs> I have to do that every fucking week now. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of almost looking for a discovery moment where I go, uh, actually, this one shows all the flaws and I can say something interesting and I can critique it. No, this one is fantastic and it's, but it's, it's edge of your seat, nail biting. I've never yeah. seen Carl Weathers direct anything before. Yeah. And the same with uh, Bryce Dallas Howard last year. Yeah, week. yeah. Where are these incredible directors coming from? <laughs> where, where, who, who knew these people could direct? This is a far more compelling chase sequence than 99% of modern action movies. It just keeps knocking it out of the park again and again and again. It, it sort of throws me for a loop every week where I think, okay, I know where this is going to go. And it does something absolutely brilliant. And you think, well, how the fuck have they managed that? Yeah, I mean, an- annoyingly, I still need to uh, start the second season. Oh, but, dear. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, I thought the first one was fabulous, and if if it deserves uh, consistent praise, then yeah, absolutely keep doing it. There's a, a beautiful, beautiful sequence with the Razor Crest and some Tie Fighters. That's just so. It's a bit of a fuck yeah moment as well. The Mandalorian is very good at those. Making oh fuck yeah, that was really cool. You come out of it with a big grin on your face. Coming along to save the motherfucking day. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, it's it's popcorn stuff. You sit there with your bowl of popcorn, going and another and yeah, yeah. And every week it's got another one. Again, my only real criticism of the Mandalorian is well, and now I can't criticize it for the plot being stalled because it has actually moved now and in a very interesting way. So I'm really, really interested to see. And even when the plot was stalled, it was good. And yeah, yes. and, but you just get a genre film every week in the Star Wars universe, and what's wrong with that? Did you know? I saw recently. Apparently, if you want to, you can buy boxes of uh, Baby Yoda's space macarons. That's in the latest episode. Yeah, you, you can buy those. I saw that on Twitter. You can buy boxes of them. Yes, I did notice he was eating blue macaroons, which aren't very spacey because everyone looks at that and goes, "That's a macaroon." <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's as fantastic as it ever was. And yeah, I've locked myself into this thing of sitting here every week, going, "Isn't the Mandalorian brilliant?" But it is. So there you go. I have to be honest. Awesome. Okay, as promised last week. We're going to do some asteroid slash comet slash meteorite trivia. Now that Fireball has been done with. (laughs) No, not done with. I'm looking forward to that. The interesting thing about this, actually, is that I wrote it last week and I should have read over it again before we started uh, recording, but I haven't. So (laughs) these are going to be new to me as well because I've forgotten them by now. (laughs) There we go. Yeah, I found a National Geographic article entitled Asteroids and Comets. And this starts out in such a lovely way. Actually, I'd like to read this in Werner Herzog's voice in my terrible impression of it. Please do. Because I just think it's better. Okay. At some point in the future, an asteroid or comet will slam into Earth again and alter the planet irreversibly. That's from National Geographic. <laughs> oh, cheers, guys. So there's hope then. No? No, brilliant. Okay. I won't do the whole thing in the Werner Herzog voice. Don't what would it have been like? It was a little bit like, David Attenborough, actually. I'm sorry about alter that. Alter the planet irreversibly. Yeah. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Though too small to earn the distinction of planets, asteroids and comets loom large in literature and folklore. The reason is clear. One of the chunky rocks or icy mud balls will eventually slam into Earth and change the planet irreversibly. Such an impact 65 million years ago is widely believed to have killed off the dinosaurs. The distinctions between asteroids and comets is fuzzy. Comets tend to have more chemical compounds that vaporise when heated, such as water, and more elliptical orbits than asteroids do. And when observed through a telescope, comets appear fuzzier. Well... I didn't know that. But I did like the fact that, because I mentioned Greenland last week, and there's a little aside about the difference between an asteroid and a comet. And I like the fact that it was very subtly addressed with, it doesn't fucking matter what it is, because it's about to obliterate everything so sharp. Yeah, (laughs) that's fair enough, I think. (laughs) Let's start off with some asteroid trivia then. Asteroids are essentially chunks of rock that measure in size from a few feet to several miles in diameter. Some asteroids are called meteoroids. The largest asteroid, Ceres, is about 590 miles wide. Like most asteroids, it lies in the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter. Many astronomers believe the belt is primordial material that never glommed, and that's a real word, glommed into a planet because of Jupiter's gravitational pull. Other astronomers say the belt is a planet that was broken apart during a collision. If all of the asteroids in the solar system were combined into a ball, they would still be much smaller than Earth's moon. If the sun was as tall as a typical front door, bear with me here, Earth would be the size of a nickel, the moon would be about as big as a green pea, and Ceres, the largest object in the main asteroid belt, would be as small as a sesame seed. Wow. So not very big in is, general. Is, is glommed just some kind of astrocentric term for undergo cohesion? Yeah. Except you sound more scientific than they do. <laughs> yeah, but well, yeah, it's just, I looked it up, glommed is a... See, it's smaller objects becoming a larger object. Glommed. So snowballing. Yeah. Mmm, yum. <laughs> I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> Sorry, you know me by now. There are more than 150 asteroids that are known to have their own moon. The first discovery of an asteroid moon system was asteroid Ida and its moon Dactyl in 1993. Well. Asteroid with its own little, little tiny moon running around it. Oh, that's cute. How about some comet trivia? Sometimes comets are referred to, and after your last bit, sometimes comets are referred to as dirty snowballs. <laughs> or cosmic snowballs. This gets snowballs. better and better. <laughs> this, is because they're co- this is because they're composed mostly of spunk, ice, rock, gas, and dust. <laughs> 
Comets are believed to originate in one or two regions. The theorized Oort cloud, or the Kuiper belt, found beyond the orbit of Neptune and the dwarf planet Pluto. The Oort cloud is an outer region of the solar system 50,000 to 150,000 times the distance from the Sun to the Earth that is believed to contain dormant comets. Some of the comets that originate here have orbits lasting millions of years. The most famous comet is Halley's Comet. It has been observed since at least 240 BC. Its orbit makes it visible from Earth every 76 years, and it was named after the British astronomer Edmund Halley. Damn. Yeah. I never actually, I know of Halley's Comet, but I don't actually think I knew who Edmund Halley was, which is... Uh, interesting that most of them are believed to originate in just one or two regions. So there's sort of comet nursery, if you like, and occasionally one breaks off. There are over 3,000 currently known comets. Scientists believe there are up to 1 billion comets in our solar system. A great comet is one which is bright enough to be visible from Earth without the need for a telescope. Approximately one great comet happens every 10 years. Do, you, do we know when the last one occurred? Um, Haley has been... There was one a few years ago that I really, really meant to go and see. And I remember going outside for a cigarette and looking up and it was cloudy because it's England. And go, yeah, well, fuck that then. But, you know, I'm sure it was lovely in Hawaii or wherever else. <laughs> and, of course, what everyone wants to talk about when it comes to comets and asteroids, asteroid impacts. An asteroid passing relatively close to Earth is more common than most people realise. Every year, dozens of asteroids that are big enough to cause regional devastation pass within 5 million miles of Earth, the cutoff for potentially hazardous asteroids. On average, one or two space rocks large enough to cataclysmically impact a continent pass by every year. Holy shit. <laughs> An enormous asteroid, big enough to leave a six-mile-wide crater and darken the world with dust if it hit Earth, will harmlessly zip by our planet on April the 29th. I believe this has already happened, actually. The object, called 1998 OR2, is at least a mile wide, and while it poses no threat, it will pass within four million miles of our planet, close enough to be classified by NASA as potentially hazardous. But it's already happened. We're cool. Don't worry about it. Four million miles is potentially hazardous. Yeah. So what's the minimum bracket for shit? You have to shit yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Even space rocks smaller than 500 feet wide can be extremely dangerous. Some meteors explode in the sky with the strength of nuclear bombs, such as the one that burst over Chelyabinsk in Russia in 2013. At only 66 feet wide, this fireball meteor caused a shockwave that hit the city, shattering glass and resulting in about 1,500 injuries. No one saw it coming. At only 66 feet. Yeah, and it caused a blast like a nuclear bomb. 66 feet isn't, like, it's not fucking inconspicuous. It gives you a sort of sense of if one a couple of miles wide hit Earth. Well, yeah. We're all pretty much fucked. Yeah. Earth will almost certainly, and this is from space.com, so, yeah, reliable source. Earth will almost certainly confront a space rock large enough to obliterate a city, or worse, at some point in its future. If humans are still around when that day comes, it would be prudent to have a plan for protecting the planet. That's why NASA is launching a spacecraft next year to conduct the first test of one promising strategy for stopping a killer asteroid. Killer, astro <laughs> killer asteroid. An asteroid. <laughs> it's like Adenoids. Adenoids. Uh. It's an astronaut <laughs> mixed with an asteroid. The double asteroid redirection test, DART, will slam a spacecraft into the smaller of two asteroids orbiting each other. Any change in the smaller object's orbit will be easy to measure from Earth and will provide a good indicator of whether it has been successfully deflected. Cool. Yeah? So there is a plan. Don't worry. Go to bed. Sleep psych. It's only the deadly pandemic you need to worry about. <laughs> anyway, thank you very much for joining us. As usual, guys, that's the end of our free podcast this week. We are off to do the premium podcast where we thought, well, I've reviewed a film that's got time travel as a main element. So we decided we'd have a good look at time travel films and time travel in films, for that matter. And just time travel itself. Yeah. Because it's, I mean, it's, it's cool. It's a cool concept, isn't it? And before anybody gets on our backs, yes, we're going to mention Looper. And I know we've mentioned it before, but it's going to happen again. Okay? Absolutely. Probably not in as much depth as previously because we have, I feel like we've covered Looper like three times. Well, but it's, it's a good film. So get ready for a fourth then. Yeah. No, 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 not necessarily. We've got lots and lots of other stuff as well. <clears throat> we're going to be discussing time travel mechanics. We're going to be discussing our favourite usages of time travel. We're going to be discussing time travel stuff that we hate and think is really cliched and tropey. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, please do consider subscribing to our premium content. If you look at our Patreon page, you just type into Google Cinematalist Patreon and there's links on Twitter and there's links on the cinematalist.com website and there's a million different ways to find us. Please do consider subscribing to support the podcast. We release four premium podcasts a month. 
We've got a forum and a whole community thing that we're setting up at the moment, and we'd really appreciate your financial support. And of course, uh, check out cinematist.com and click on the Wacko Jacko blog button to check out Liam's blog. And uh, check out Cinemental Cast on Twitter. And, well, Liam, you do your bit. Yeah, well, just, I just want to say, as always, guys, thank you very much for listening. To follow me on Twitter, I'm Liam at the movies. My handle is at Wacko Jacko's Flicks. That's F-L-I-X. And obviously, Andy already mentioned Cinematalist.com where you can find all of my other bullshit. Yeah, do check out Liam's written reviews. They are pretty exceptional, I like to think. Thank you very much, sir. But yeah, we're off to record the premium. Hope to see you there. If not, free one next week. Thank you very much, guys. 